0: All right, you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you are already seen, we get to observe some key aspects of the church's life, from witnessing baptisms to later welcoming some new members. And these are important parts of the fellowship of a local church. And on Sundays like these, I like to give a message from the Word about the church itself. As church life is front and center, it's just a perfect opportunity for us to be reminded and instructed of the church's privileges and purposes. And that's what we get from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. We only have time for a shorter message this morning, but it's it's still just enough time to glean the privileges and the purpose of the church. I mean, as the church, those called of God, we've been granted many great privileges. These come with a purpose and we better not lose sight of that. Let me try to understand the concept of great privileges being given for a purpose just think of judges, for example, we as a society give a class of people called judges a huge amount of power and privilege. They have this privilege to interpret and apply the law. They don't sit above the law, but we entrust them with the privilege of judging right and wrong. They even have the power to sentence someone to life in jail or even death. With this great power and privilege, though, comes Purpose. Why do we as a society give judges their position? Well, it should be so that they can uphold justice and equality, that they can defend the weak and innocent, that they can punish the wicked, and all of the, the great privilege that comes with their position has a, a key purpose. Sometimes, though, judges lose sight of their purpose, and their power can go to their head. An L.A. County judge was removed uh, years back for an abuse of power. So a woman came into court challenging a seatbelt ticket, and she claimed that she wasn't even the motorist who was pulled over. is all big mix-up and understanding, but the judge was convinced she was lying, so he had the bailiff jail her, never read her charges, her, new, her rights, never read her, her ability to appeal or write to an attorney. She just sat in jail for two days until another judge heard the case and released her because she was telling the truth and is a malfunction of Justice or due process. But just imagine that. You you go into court just to appeal a ticket and then you end up in jail for two days. And there's nothing you can do about it, because the, the judge holds all that power. For some judges, it's called the black robe disease, where the great power and privilege goes to their head. They lose sight of their purpose just to uphold true justice. And there's there's a bit of a parallel here in Christ. By God's sovereign grace, we've been given many great privileges. We're not made judges over society, but far greater. We've been granted forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, the new birth, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a long list, more of all that we have in Christ. It's a long list of privileges we've received, all by grace, but, and we have a, a, a right standing in a high position before God, but it's all on purpose, and it all comes with a purpose. God has many purposes for granting us salvation and leaving us here below. And we as the church better not lose sight of that. Squander our privileges and, and fall short of our purpose. We've been bought with a price and richly blessed. And now we are to live not for our purposes, but for God's. And for today, we have a special little passage in, in First Peter that speaks to both our many privileges and the purpose they come with. And so on a Sunday like this, when our eyes are fixed on, on church life, I think this is a fitting reminder. So let's, let's turn here and read along 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, passage for this morning. Peter instructs the church. He says to them, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's simple enough from this text, we want to observe the church's many privileges so that we might not lose sight of our purpose. We want to observe the church's many privileges that we might not lose sight of our purpose. And just two parts. Let's start with the church's privilege. And Peter speaking to believers here in the church, he rattles off five key privileges that we have in Christ. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a potent list. if you know Christ today, you already have been richly favored by God. Now, in the past few years in our society, there's been much debate over this notion of privilege. Some argue that certain classes of people inherit privilege at birth and therefore have all these advantages in life. And Sometimes I think we all say that's probably true, but to pass judgment on a whole class of people as privileged under such general terms is largely nonsense. But that being said, scripture does define a whole class of people as privileged, spiritually speaking. The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you are privileged now, not societally in, in society. Many times being a Christian comes at the cost of advancing in society, but but spiritually, in God's eyes, you are greatly privileged just by virtue of your birth. Not your first birth, your second birth. Just by virtue of being born again, you automatically inherit a lot of privileges. This is a case where every single person who truly belongs to the church, the the people of God, is blessed and privileged by God. We can't boast in all all that we have. It, It all comes by God's grace, but God gives us all of these blessings here below for a purpose. We need to get this right. Make sense of this and live in light of how richly blessed we are in Christ. So let's just start here. We're going to survey the five privileges Peter highlights in this short passage in verse 9. Starting there, he starts with number one. You are a chosen race. That's our first privilege. You are a chosen race. So, we're translated race, genos, can be translated in many different ways, but the idea of race in scripture really groups people more according to a common ancestor or common heritage. Today, human race is defined as a group of people with certain common features that distinguish them from other groups of people. Anthropologists say that there are three main races Caucasian, Asian, and Black. But what actually separates these races is rather superficial. And today scientists have found that these different races, which historically have been so separate, they actually have 99.99 plus percent of identical genetic code. The actual differences between races are minuscule. But mankind has taken something like skin color and made it a main source of division. Now, even if everyone on the planet looked the same, they Man would still find some reason to divide. It's just the nature of sin. You know, man plus sin does not equal unity. But the fact that not everyone on the planet looks the same, you know, man's superficial division has been extreme throughout world history. Some estimate there are over 24,000 ethnic groups in the world. It's only about 200 nations. So that's quite a lot of further subdivision right language ethnicity religion caste culture education politics customs behavior man will subdivide over just about anything but do you see what God is doing with this thing called the church something pretty amazing peter calls us here a chosen race that might raise a question like how is the church a race which which is the chosen race which one's he talking about have you seen the demographics of the church universal. It's people from all races. So how's he calling the church a chosen race? What, what race is he talking about? But again, keep in mind, the word race in scripture is less about ethnicity and more about ancestry. And the thing is now in the church, we all have the exact same ancestry. We've all been adopted by the same father, God. We all descend from the same head, Christ, who's head of a new race. We're no longer, longly, uh, no longer strictly descended from Adam. Christ is the head of a new race, which surpasses, sits on top of all ethnicities, all languages, all cultures. It's the race of Christians, you might say, Christ followers, the Church. And in this race, we're all the same. We're all brothers and sisters. Isn't this Galatians three twenty eight? There, the apostle Paul says that in this church, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We now also all trace back to Abraham, not physically, but spiritually, the forefather of the faith. If you know Christ by faith, you're part of this, this new lineage, a chosen seed. All who know Christ by faith belong to this people of promise, which is called the church. The participation in the church doesn't obliterate our other distinctions. There still is male and female. There still is rich and poor and different races and ethnicities. But being in the church removes all of those as a source of division. All races are incorporated into one through Christ in the church. You just get a, a beautiful picture of the harmony of the races in heaven. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John gets a vision of heaven and who does he see there worshiping God? Revelation 7, 9 says he saw people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. He he witnesses the redeemed from every nation, every skin culture, every ethnicity or skin color, rather, and every ethnicity there around the throne. They're all worshiping as one. And we As a church on earth, certainly fall short of this ideal as sin still gets in the way. But this already can be an exhortation for us to strive for the unity we have in the church. And you better do so because if you're in this church, the Lord's church, you're not in by your own doing. You're in by God's doing. So you better go along with his purposes. It's it's his church. Notice Peter doesn't just call us a race, but a chosen race. Literally, an elect race. Peter began this letter with a reference to election. God choosing us to be his. God is the one who called and chose us to be part of his new family, new race. Talk about the ultimate undeserved privilege to be called and chosen by God. All righty, this is enough to humble you, to elicit unending thanksgiving from you. And to, to move you to live as his people. But before we get there, let's add a second privilege. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. Just pacing along, verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. This is interesting. When was the last time you thought of yourself as a priest? Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest? Probably not. This verse and others tell us you are. What does that even mean? You know, for most most Christians today, when when they think of a priest, they they just can't help it. The first image that comes to their mind is that of a Roman Catholic priest, just pervasive in many cultures. And the Roman Catholic priest, he's a celibate holy man who wears a uniform and lives to administer the sacraments of the church. But that notion of priesthood is 100% absent from the New Testament church. There's no notion of that priesthood at all. Rather, the priesthood in Peter's mind is going back to the Old Testament priesthood of the Jews. And just think about this. What was the main privilege of the priesthood in the Old Testament? It's the fact that they could draw near to God. They could come close to God. Israel's worship was always centered on a temple or tabernacle. The presence of God. But only the priests could enter that place. If you're just an average Jew, you you couldn't even enter the place of God. And even then, God's greater presence was associated with the mercy seat sitting atop the Ark of the Covenant, which itself was located in this inner chamber called the Holy of Holies, separated by a veil, and not even the priest could go into that place. No priest was ever allowed into that inner presence of God, except the high priest once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil separating the Holy of Holies was torn into. In Christ, the way to God has been opened. And even more, Christ then made his people priests. All of them. If if only holy priests are allowed into God's presence, well, he's just going to have to make them all holy priests. And that's what scripture teaches he did. Revelation 1.6 says, Jesus made us to be priests to his God and Father. Just literally what it says. He made us to be priests to his God and Father. And what that means is that we now have the privilege from the greatest to the least to draw near to God's very presence. And here Peter adds we are a royal priesthood. We're not just a race, we're a chosen race, we're not just a priesthood, we're a royal priesthood, which means we belong to the king. In the ancient world, kings had their own regiment of priests to lead them in worship and to serve. The royal priests served God and king, and this fits our bill. Christ is the king. He's the high priest, but he's made all believers to be priests in his kingdom, to serve him, and even to rule with him. Revelation 5.10 says of the church, it says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So consider now this, the second profound privilege that we probably never ever think about. I, I imagine for a lot of you never consider your privilege that's been given to you. If you know Christ, you're a priest. Not in the sense you think of it. This is another point of contention we would have with the Catholic church. The new Testament never prescribes a class of clergy known as priests who alone are allowed to draw near to God. You don't need a human priest anymore. If you know Christ, he's made you a priest. And Christ himself is the only mediator between God and man. And in him, now you've been granted total and complete access to the presence of God. He's given you the indwelling spirit for that very purpose. So is this something you, you take for granted? Do you fail to appreciate this privilege and as we'll see later, live in light of this privilege. Again, we already get a glimpse here of the purpose just inherent in this second privilege. If you're granted the privilege of priesthood, that, that probably means God expects you to function like a priest. And what was the main job of the Old Testament priest? It was to offer sacrifices. Was their main job. And that's what God wants you to do now. Didn't Peter just say that back in verse five? I know we haven't looked at these verses, but go back to verse five of chapter two. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As priests now, we no longer offer up the life of some animal to the Lord. We offer up our lives to the Lord on the altar. God saved you, and as a result, you should now happily be devoting your your whole life to his kingdom, his purposes, as part of the privilege of priesthood. So, are you doing that? Third privilege now, you are a holy nation. Third, you are a holy nation. With this third one, Peter continues to draw off of Old Testament imagery. Specifically here, he's highlighting Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 is where God is just about to give the Ten Commandments to the people, but he first tells them their privilege as his people. Exodus 19.5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. With Israel, God created for himself a nation, a unique nation. He he gave that nation many privileges and then he tasked them with his purpose to be a light to the nations and to, to praise his name. And God has done very much the same today with the church. He has made the church now into a type of holy nation. Now I mentioned earlier, there are roughly... 200 countries in the world to be more precise. The United nations recognizes 193 countries plus Vatican city and plus 12 other States. It's hard to make a a single list though, because not everyone agrees who's a nation. For example, North Korea does not recognize South Korea. South Korea does not recognize North Korea. Pakistan does not recognize Armenia. 33 nations do not recognize Israel. Almost no nation recognizes Palestine. One thing is sure, you won't find the church ever listed under the UN table of nations. The church is not a nation in the traditional sense of the word. So we wonder how are we called here a a holy nation? Every nation is associated with some land, some parcel on earth marks every nation. The church has no land, but the church belongs to a heavenly country and our citizenship is in heaven Here on earth, we're we're exiles, we're strangers, we're awaiting our home. But when you think about it even further, though, in another sense, the church does have a land. And it's the whole earth. Didn't God just say in Exodus, the whole earth is mine? The whole earth is Christ's inheritance. He will take it back when he returns. And his promise is to share it with his people. The land of the church is just the whole earth. Until then, though, we're, we're exiles, we're strangers here. But as members of that kingdom, this nation, he calls us to be holy, to live not like we belong to this world, to live like we belong to the next world. Holy denotes the church's separation from the world, separation unto God. The church is a set apart people. And a part of the reasons that we're exiles and strangers is that we just we can't live like the world lives here below. We don't share the same values, we don't have the same master. And because of the great privilege of being reconciled to our God and Father, of living near his presence, we have to live how? Holy. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1. So probably on the same page. 1 Peter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 17. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay, uh, during the time of your stay on earth. And this world is not our home. But while we're here, while, while we're stuck here, Our privileged position should translate into holy living. That is how God wants his people to be known. Not by language, not by skin color. He wants his people to be known by holiness. For that is how God is known. Now, two more here. Number four, you are a possessed people. You are a possessed people. Verse nine, it says, we are a people for God's own possession. We're possessed by another. This also draws off of Exodus 19.5. And, and also Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. I'll read that. he God to Israel. He tells them, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God possesses for himself a unique, distinct people which he has acquired with a price. And what was the price? The purchase price of this people. Enslaved to sin. He bought them back. Redeemed them with the price of the blood of his own son. We just read 1 Peter 1.17. What's the next verse? Again, go back to 1 Peter 1.18. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation 5:9 adds that Jesus purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we, we've been bought with a price as a special people for God. And this is just another monumental privilege. This is something you want. You want to be possessed by God. You want to be ransomed or redeemed because this comes with other things. Like we've said, forgiveness of sins, redemption, reconciliation, eternal life, your soul's satisfaction. You're never truly free from sin. That is until you're bought and enslaved to Christ by faith in him. This becomes all the more special as you read the beginning of verse 10. Jump down to verse 10. This is 1 Peter 2 uh, 2 now. Verse 10. He goes on and says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. This once was true for Israel, and this will be true for Israel again. National Israel has been cut off from God in unbelief, but they will be regathered. Now, speaking of Israel, though, We're meant to learn from their failed example. Back then, God made them his ethnic people. They were a literal, holy, chosen nation. And he gave them so many other privileges. His word, his covenant, the priesthood, so forth, the temple. They had all these privileges and they were meant to use them for what? For this purpose. Be a light to the nations. To proclaim his name. But Israel totally failed in their purpose because they forsook their privileges went after other gods. And as a result, God disciplined the nation, hardened them in unbelief. Her privileges were revoked and given to a new people, the church, which is not an ethnic people. The church is the redeemed of all the nations, all ethnicities. And this was always God's plan. Only now though, for us through a better covenant, a new covenant through Christ being indwelled by the spirit, we can actually fulfill God's calling. It's true in a sense that the church has replaced the function of Israel because God now is working through the church to minister the gospel, to be a light to all the nations. We must add though that we believe there are certain unconditional promises and privileges God gave to national Israel and the church does not replace those. In the fullness of time, Israel will be regathered in belief and in her privileged place as, as one nation among the nations will be restored. Now's not that time though. And, and really whatever you believe about future Israel, one thing we can agree on, which, which is the main point, no one is entitled to right standing before God. No Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, nobody is entitled to be God's people. The only reason any nation, any person can stand before God as his possession is because he he purchased them. His mercy is the only reason we all are cut off in sin and under God's judgment. But this is why he sent his son Christ to die on the cross, rise from the dead that our sins might be put away, that our, our sins might be paid for that we could be redeemed with this price and it's only now through Christ that we can stand before God as his. So now we can legitimately say we too, once were not a people. Now we are the people of God. What a privilege this was for these ancient Christians. The whole world was telling them that you don't belong. You're, you're outcasts or you're rejects. And they were making them feel it. But God tells them you belong to me. You're my special possession. And this is a privilege we share. Again, I think we lose sight of that. That by grace and grace alone, we are the people of God. And Christians, once again, might become more despised and rejected by the world. But no matter, we still have the greatest privilege. We're God's. He has purchased us. We are his privileged possession. This really dovetails into the fifth and final privilege of the church. Mentioned at the end of verse 10. Number five, you have received mercy. You have received mercy. He says in verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've largely covered this, but mercy forms the foundation for all of the privileges we receive in Christ. This this is the ultimate privilege just to be recipients of God's mercy. Formerly, we we were cut off from God. It's good to remember your former position, then you can really appreciate your your current position. But formerly, we as Gentiles were separated from God. This is Ephesians 2.11. Paul recalls how at that time we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, the good old days before our salvation weren't good. They were terrible. We were without hope, without God in the world. But God, because of his great mercy, he gave us this ultimate privilege. Just new new birth, new life. Ephesians 2.4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ for by grace, you've been saved. Now, this is something we we need to give thanks for. We've received the mercy of God and through it, new life, hope, and everything that goes with it. Do you appreciate all the privileges you have in Christ? You think about them and don't you think when you do call them to mind, it, it should like completely change the way you live And that's the whole purpose here. Peter is laboring to call to mind to rattle off just a short list of our many privileges in Christ. But he has a purpose. It's so that we might be driven to fulfill our purpose. Indeed, our privileged position comes with a purpose. So let's switch gears now and cover that. secondly here, the church's purpose. I've seen the church's privilege and five of them. Now the church's purpose And God has given many purposes to the church. We've already caught a glimpse of some of them. Inherent in our privileged position, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We are to conduct ourselves in holiness during our time on earth. But in the middle of verse 9, Peter zeroes in on one huge purpose. And he doesn't want us to miss it. So let's let's not miss it. Go back to verse 9. He says you're a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see that sandwich in between verses 9 and 10 is this so that statement. And both what comes before and after provides the basis for it. God has given the church all these privileges. Why? Why? He says, so that you, that's plural, you all, the church, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's given you all these preachers. One big reason is that, or all these privileges, one of the big reasons that you now might become preachers. All of you. Proclaiming God is not just for pastors on Sunday mornings. It's for every single one of you, every single day. To proclaim here means to announce, to herald, to tell. The idea is you're declaring to those on the outside, you know, what's going on inside these walls? I mean, just think about it. Here we are, we're, we're holed up in our little building, worshiping God safe and sound, and that's, that's fine. But the world outside is still perishing. So what do you think God wants you to do? Does he wants you to stay holed up in your building 24-7, in your house, in your bubble. Now that you need to proclaim, he wants you to go out into the world and just your neighborhood, just the people in your life and tell others about him. Proclaim what? Proclaim the excellencies of him. You know, a lot of what passes for evangelism today is quite man centered. And it feels like a sales pitch designed to appeal to the felt needs of a customer to close a deal. But there should just be a simple and significant God centeredness to your message. I mean, we're the beneficiaries, but the gospel is about God, who he is, what he has done through his son to save us. So tell others of his excellencies. Tell them of God's perfections, his holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy. Tell them of his mighty deeds, creation, judgment, redemption, salvation. Tell them about God. You're going to be declaring his excellencies for all eternity. He wants you to start now. People naturally talk about what excites them. It's just our nature. For example, a new trailer came out for a new Spider-Man movie, and online you'll find all sorts of people talking about it, making videos about it. Why? It's because it excites them. I'm telling you about it. And it kind of excites me. Look, <laughs> looks pretty good. But look, from our children to our accomplishments to vacations to life events, we just we naturally want to tell people about what excites us. And that's not wrong. But the point here is that that God should be your greatest delight. I mean, especially having been given all these privileges, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you should naturally want to talk about him. Naturally, God should be just so great in your eyes, such a significant part of your life. You just, you can't help yourself, but and just keep kind of bringing the conversation back to him one way or another. It's just what you want to talk about the most. You're excited to share the excellencies with believers and fellowship, even with the lost in evangelism. There is one difference though. You know, talking about your favorite movie is not going to get you persecuted or fired from your job or disowned from your family. But talking about Jesus might. And people might not care about the latest movie you want to share with them, but they're not going to hate you over it. But that's not always the case when telling others about the Lord. Still, our love for God and our love for the lost compels us. God has privileged us for this purpose. So even, even in the face of the fear of man, we just we can't be silent. Romans 1013 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him? Whom they've not heard. How will they hear without a preacher? People need to hear the gospel preached. It's God's ordained means of salvation. And guess what? Just as Jesus made all of his people priests, he also made all of them, in this sense, preachers. Yes, some may be gifted expositors of the word to lead a a local church, but all disciples are called to make disciples by sharing the gospel. And so are are you doing that? Are you fulfilling your purpose? We got the chance to hear some testimonies this morning with the baptisms. And let's just say that. That's a wonderful way to proclaim the excellencies of God. Just use your own gospel-rich personal testimony. I mean, isn't, isn't that what 1 Peter 2.9 is all about? What are you doing? You're proclaiming the great God who, who called you out of darkness, called you into his light. You, you've seen it. You're telling others you should resonate resonate with this experience of being called from darkness to light, And, and look, people can't argue with that. They can't argue with your personal testimony. Testify to others how you yourself once lived in the darkness. You know all too well that life in the darkness. You neglected God and His will. You stuffed your life full of the immoralities and passing pleasures of the world, but your soul still wasn't satisfied. He found emptiness, discontentment, bitterness. But then God called you. You can't fully explain it. You were lost. Now you're found. you were blind. Now you can see. You're in the darkness. Now you're in the light. One thing you know, it's, it's through this, this gospel, this good news message. The light of the good news dawned on you. God made you find your soul's delight in him. He did that by sending his son to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that you might be redeemed. I mean, your sin, your rebellion had cut you off from God. You lived in the darkness as his enemy. But even still, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I testify that message to others. Now God has called you into his light and his ways, they're no longer a burden to you. No, now you you have tasted and seen freedom, peace, joy in your soul. Even when things go wrong in life, you can still say, It's well with my soul. I mean, that, that's just a testimony. Those still living in darkness need to hear. Who's gonna tell them? You're just waiting for me to go share with everybody? Who's going to tell them? We've considered this morning some of our greatest privileges as believers. You're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a possessed people, those who've received mercy. We could add to these five, 50 more. As a result, though, praise and thanksgiving should come from your lips daily, but so should proclamation. This was one of God's chief intended purposes in saving you and then leaving you here. Will you take his calling for granted? Will you take your privileges for granted and squander your time, your opportunities, or will you use them? Will you be used by him for his kingdom, his glory? Just consider already who in your life right now is is still living in the darkness. Who might you see at Thanksgiving dinner and go there, but who's going to show them the light? Could, could you have been called for such a purpose? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That, that verse, what, what a blessing, what a privilege. We've been shown the glory of God in the face of Christ. All that we have, we've received by grace so by God's grace, he's still working by grace, still saving by grace, sovereign grace. Yet He's sovereignly determined to use us, this people, the church, to accomplish his will, his purposes. So let us be convicted and be resolved to, to proclaim, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim his gospel, to live in light of all the privileges we have received. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is our, our joy and delight to recall you, your son Christ, and all that we have received in him. We Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for sending this perfect substitute to the cross that he might die in our place. Even when we were enemies cut off in rebellion, the Savior came and, and bought us back the purchase price of his own blood, his perfect life, that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And in Christ now, we are on top of just forgiveness. We're richly blessed with so many things you've made us in all just your people, a special prized people to dwell with you, to behold your glory for all eternity, to live forever in the Holy of Holies. But until then, while we are still strangers and aliens on this earth, help us to, to live rightly. You've left us here until the kingdom for your purpose. And we get so worried and carried away with our plans, our purposes, help us to be a people of purpose though, yours, And we know chiefly that's going to involve proclaiming, telling the world, announcing the Savior has come. So convict us this morning, embolden us to overcome the fear of man. May we just be those who proclaim, who share and love that the Savior has come. All to your praise, your glory, and our own joy and good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.